The boreal forest is the largest intact forest left on the planet. It holds a quarter of the world's wetlands. It is therefore a climate regulator. It absorbs and stores twice as much carbon as the world's tropical forest per hectare. And so if we're thinking about the capacity of the planet to help in engaging and creating those nature-based climate solutions or this ability for the planet itself to help store and capture some of that carbon, the boreal forest is the best example of that. That's Valérie Courtois, director of the Indigenous Leadership Initiative and leading advocate for the protection of Canada's boreal forests. She's our guest on Explore, the Canadian Geographic podcast. Hi, I'm David McGuffin. Welcome to all you explorers out there, armchair and in motion. You could argue there is nothing that binds Canada together like the boreal forest, defined by vast stands of spruce, lakes and swamps stretching beyond horizons. It runs in an uninterrupted band from British Columbia across the three territories and every province into Atlantic Canada. Our guest, Valérie Courtois, is currently at the UN Biodiversity Conference, or COP15, in Montreal, making the case for preserving the boreal as part of the 30 by 30 goal. That is the pledge Canada and dozens of other nations have made to set aside 30% of our lands and waters as protected spaces in an effort to halt the dramatic decline of the planet's biodiversity, a decline that is directly linked to climate change. In our conversation, Valérie Courtois talks about the importance of the boreal, why Indigenous people are and always have been the best protectors of our wild spaces, and the Indigenous Guardians program that aims to do just that. Val Courtois is Inu from Goose Bay, Labrador, a registered forester. She focuses on Indigenous issues, as well as being the director of the Indigenous Leadership Initiative. She has advised the Assembly of First Nations of Quebec and Labrador and the Innu Nation on forestry. Valérie Courtois, welcome to the Explore podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me. Well, it's great to have you here. We're going to be talking boreal forests. And uh, first of all, you're in Goose Bay, mm -hmm. which is one end of this amazing stretch of forest that runs literally right across the country, mm -hmm. right? So can you describe for me your end of that boreal forest in Labrador and, and what, what it means to you? Well, first of all, it's... Uh... It's also known as Ndesinan, which is uh, the Innu word for our land. SC is the name for land. Mm -hmm. um, and mm -hmm. uh, it is the easternmost kind of extent of the boreal. Of course, I would, you know, the island of Newfoundland is a little further east. But other than that, um, yeah. we're the ones. Uh, and it's really essentially almost like a, a, a like a boreal rainforest the fire cycles in this part of the boreal are, are quite long in fact in in some parts of the forest here we're finding that uh, that that fire cycle could be over 500 years in some cases eight to a thousand years um, in length that's not necessarily what people first think about when they think about the boreal they think about this very fire driven system um, mm -hmm. here in the east fire is an important, uh, kind of stand replacement um, uh, disturbance, but um, but other types of disturbances like like senescence, like um, like insects, like wind throw, and other forms are what dominate um, how the stands replace in this part of the of the boreal. Contrary to 
to parts of the boreal like Alberta or um, Northwest Territories or Saskatchewan or even Western Quebec, which have a much more fire-driven system um, that, mm -hmm. uh, that, that drives them. Uh, this part of the boreal also has extensive wetlands. Um, uh, many of them are, are kind of like treed bogs. Uh, and, um, and that kind of wet system, um, is, is, is an important driver as well of, of the way that, that, that fire, um, kind of moves through the landscape. Uh, we do have, uh, quite a lot of like lichen beds and these kind of sparse boreal forests with the trees that have a lot of layering, um, in terms mm -hmm. of, of the way that they, they reproduce, and um, and it is a, a caribou landscape, um, uh, which is why my people are here. We are um, a caribou people, and uh, mm -hmm. the George River herd in particular has been essential um, to our story uh, of of why we're we're here on this landscape, and um, and that is uh, that is a caribou that that really occupies um, most of the Quebec Labrador Peninsula, and. Obviously, the boreal forest is key to their survival, and I know that. I mean, I think all the caribou herds across the country are having issues mm -hmm. right now. And how, what's the link? What's the link there? Well, um, the yes, the George River herd was once the largest herd of any ungulates in the world. Um, in the early nineties, the census that was made found that they were about eight hundred thousand animals. Um, but that census wow. had a, quite a big. Um, confidence interval and and many of us think that the herd was actually closer to a million um, at the time wow. and uh, since then it's been suffering a gradual decline um, and uh, and more recently quite a sharp decline we um, last year's um, census information or kind of like the the fall classification work that was done to to look in on the herd found that they were at about 8,000 animals. So quite a, a dramatic um, decline. And um, we've, we've been trying to look at, you know, what are the factors in terms of that decline? Of course, caribou do have a, a, a cycle, a population cycle, um, much like uh, lynx and rabbits and other animals. The only difference is that the caribou's population cycle tends to be much, much longer, of course. And so somewhere around 70 to 90 years. Um, so that, that kind of cycle of up and down in the population is natural. But, but what we're seeing in the herd is, is definitely some impacts of climate change. We've noticed changes in, in things like insect behavior and therefore, um, you know, and, and more abundance of insects, more, uh, more flies, more, more of those sorts of things. And, and caribou don't really like insects. Well, like uh, like the rest of us, I don't know if you've been in the northern boreal, especially right. in the east where it's very wet. Um, it's quite buggy, yep. and um, that could drive you crazy. And so, uh, for caribou, they have a tendency, therefore, of staying a little bit in higher ground now rather than coming into the valleys where there is better food for them. And so, um, in fact, a caribou will choose um, wind over good food um, when it is bug season. Mm. And um, yeah. so that has changed the, the, the way that they migrate, the timing of their migration, and, um, and the quality of, of nutrients that they can obtain. Um, luckily, with the herd mm. so small, they're not competing as much 
for food as they would be um, if the if the herd was quite larger. Uh, but we are, you know, we those are some of the factors that we're seeing and and watching. We're also seeing changes in kind of predator um, dynamics, and in particular, we're noticing that black bears are taking more young caribou um, than usual, mm-hmm. and um, that's certainly been been interesting to kind of watch. In fact, we've seen that caribou have or bear have been actively hunting caribou, um, usually. Mm-hmm. What we were were used to seeing was was more kind of a um, uh, 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 taking advantage of running into caribou and 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 mm-hmm. getting it, but this idea that of active hunting um, is new, and uh, so we think that that's all part of of the dynamics that are that are affecting um, its its population. We're also worried that the the last time that that herd kind of had a, a low moment, which was in the in the 30s and 40s. Uh, in fact, it was part of what precipitated the sedentary um, new lifestyle for the Innu was that previous decline. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were no real industrial activities on the landscape at the time. Um, now yeah. we have the largest nickel mine in the world, the largest iron mines in the world. Um, the one of the largest hydro projects in the world. We have two of them actually. We have um, an incredibly active mining exploration industry, um, a railroad, mm-hmm. highways. Uh, these are all things that that you know are kind of encroaching encroaching on the available space for that herd to come back. So our question is, is the herd resilient enough to adapt to? to that increase in, in pressure. Um, and just to give you a sense of what that pressure looks like in any given summer, there could be, you know, over a thousand exploration camps, um, active in Labrador. Each one of those will have multiple helicopter flights attached to those, um, a series and a breadth of activities that can run from everywhere from a guy with a hammer, um, knocking on rocks to, you know, airstrips that can accommodate dash eights to, you know, everything in between. And so if you're a caribou and you're, you're, you're um, detecting all of this activity, um, your instinct is to avoid that. Um, In fact, there are some studies that have shown that caribou will, will avoid um, linear disturbances like roads by over 20 kilometers. And so all of these things are, are, are questions that we have about, how that herd can have the space that it needs to come back, and this, these these questions are are essential because, as I said, we are a caribou people. Our understanding yeah. of our place in the world um, revolves around that that relationship, and um, and in fact, much much of our food security um, historically has also depended on on that herd, um, and so. It's uh, it's essential for for our nations and not just the Innu nation of which I'm a member of, but mm-hmm. all of the nations that that depend on on caribou to really um, uh, figure this out and and work hard on on what can be done to uh, ensure that the that that relationship continues into per- perpetuity. Yeah. It's a really good example of how everything is tied together, right? You have climate, you have you know, industrial interaction in the forest or movement into the forest, and all these things are having an, an impact. And 
I know your, your mm-hmm. COP15 is happening in Montreal, and that's the UN, uh, big UN climate summit, and it's focused specifically on halting biodiversity loss. And I'm, I'm just wondering what your message is when you're there. What, what, are, you, what are you hoping to bring across when you're talking about the boreal forest? Yeah, absolutely. We're going to be there um, with bells on. Look, it's, it's, it's a chance for the world to really hone in and focus in on, on biodiversity. It happens once every 10 years we we and it's in Canada um and it's important that in in with all of that reality that we highlight that the the most important and the most effective actions in terms of not only conserving biodiversity but also addressing um the issues of climate change and is is through indigenous led conservation and stewardship in fact our prime minister and mm-hmm. his cabinet have have recognized that time and again and the nations in Canada they you know we've been conservationists ever since we've existed this is we understand that that our our relationship with our landscapes is is what ensures our survivals and we also know that 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 therefore con- conveys and 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 gives us um, responsibilities uh, to that relationship, and that's that's what is really driving this conservation movement. In the last, uh, we've been operating, you know, our, our the International Boreal Conservation Campaign, which the ILI is a member of, has been supporting and working with First Nations across Canada for about twenty years mm-hmm. now. And in that time, you know, we funded a lot of the land use planning. Um, Efforts and what we've sh- we've seen is that the vast majority, in fact, over ninety percent of new protected areas that have been established in that time have been either led or co-led by indigenous peoples. We're also seeing the impacts of of the work of guardians in the last uh, five years alone. That movement has more than quadrupled in um, yeah. in First Nation communities. We've gone from about thirty programs to. 120 programs now in First Nations. So, mm-hmm. can you explain? That's the Indigenous Guardians program. Can you explain a bit about what that sure. is and how that works? Um, they're like our boots on the ground. Um, they're people whose job it is to take care of our landscapes, um, of ensuring that our traditional laws are applied, um, that our communities are are well informed of what's going on. That um, that the nations have a strong voice in in considering um, the pressures and options and opportunities um, that come to them. Uh, I'll give you. I mean, just to, to to bring this down. For example, I talked about those a thousand exploration camp, um, camps that were active in Labrador every summer. Uh, when I was managing the environment office there um, a number of years ago. I, I, you know, it's my job to review the permit applications um, for those um, those exploration camps. If I had a capacity to ask a guardian to go verify the plans, the mm-hmm. area, what sort of rights and assets and interests we might have in those areas, then then I could engage on that application much more deeply. But if I did not have that option. And if the application gave very little information and all of these things, I, I had to take a position that would protect our rights. Um, and that was to say no um, to those areas. So I've always advocated for the fact that guardians in some ways are, are good development enablers. 
um, they they can can help be a part of that process that ensures that the communities can be well informed when they are making decisions on what happens on their landscapes and and can therefore offer their free prior and informed consent um, and, and and in that that kind of acronym the the hard part is the I it's you know, we can define what's free, we can define that it's prior, we can we can define what consent looks like, but where is the line that says that you are informed enough for making those decisions? That's really hard. So my perspective is more information, the better. Um, and guardians help do that. Fantastic. Looking at the, at the bigger picture too, I mean, what is the, in terms of the climate and halting biodiversity loss and all what... What's the role? Why why is the boreal forest important? Well, first of all, it's the largest intact forest left on the planet, um, and uh, I mentioned those those wetlands um, that are in the boreal forest. In fact, it holds uh, a quarter of the world's wetlands are located within the boreal forest. It is therefore a climate regulator. It absorbs and stores twice as much carbon as the world's tropical forests per hectare. And so if we're thinking about the capacity of the planet to to help um, in engaging and creating those kind of what we're calling nature-based climate solutions or this ability for the planet itself to help store and capture some of that carbon, the boreal forest is the best example of, of that. And, um, and of course, Canada has a big part of, of that boreal forest um, that kind of circles the globe. And, uh, and we're a very large country. And we have um, the, the benefit of, of much of it still being intact, as I mentioned. And so that to me means that as a country, we have a particular responsibility to show leadership. We're also a country of, of, of the rule of law. We have, um, you know, our, our economic conditions, our social conditions, our governance conditions. Well, look, they can, um, you know, as an indigenous person, I, I, I believe they can vastly be improved, but generally speaking in terms mm-hmm. of the global community, we are a bit of a, of a, of a governance beacon. Um, and uh, if, if Canada can get it right, that by, by truly empowering indigenous nations to take on that role, which in itself will be an incredible act of reconciliation, um, then then Canada can show the way on what it looks like to to value the communities within its its borders, value the knowledge systems and sciences um, that contribute um, overall to everybody's prosperity, and to to show a way that. That doesn't necessarily um, uh, kind of break down any of the of the social fabric that has been built up, but in the, on on the contrary, actually bonifies it and 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 injects all of the values that come from from the diversity um, in our people. Mm-hmm. That um, that yeah that that hopefully this is something that other countries will will look to. Um, on how to do so the the cop really is a, a good opportunity for for canada um to showcase that um now we will be looking for indications uh, we're looking for a couple things out of cop one is 
we do we're interested in the targets obviously um every 10 years new conservation biodiversity conservation targets are are put in place and the post 2020 framework that is being negotiated has is looking at the possibility of protecting 30 percent of lands and waters by 2030 um we think that's an important target not because we think it's ambitious enough um in fact you know on average first nations when they're holding the pen on land use plans tend to protect much more than half of their landscapes and and um in some cases you know 80 to 90 percent um and so in many ways, um, they, you know, the globe is catching up to indigenous ambitions with respect to conservation. Right. But, but the target does offer a lot of space to advance and, and demonstrate those models and, and show how, um, how that return on investment really goes beyond just halting and reversing biodiversity loss. Um, and, uh, so we're, we're looking for that and in the targets, we're also looking for the recognition of indigenous rights and titles and the role of indigenous peoples and, in, in our knowledge systems in the management of biodiversity within those targets. Um, and we're hopeful right now, the draft does include much of that. We're hoping that through the, the negotiations, those, those things stay. Um, we're also looking for, for the global community to think about the financing of of these efforts um where mm-hmm. you know indigenous peoples globally um are not a, a big part of the population um or we're just a you know a few million compared to the what are we at nine billion now 30. um uh, globally mm-hmm. and um but 80 percent of the world's remaining biodiversity are on lands that we manage and, and love and so the globe um it's it's necessary to see some of that that recognition and therefore some of the financial power of, of the globe turn towards enabling um, that indigenous led conservation and stewardship. Because what we're seeing is that um, when that happens, uh, everybody benefits. And, um, and we're, we're, you know, we're at critical points. If, if, um, if we're on track to losing a million species, that's, that's not just going to be, terrible for the environment it's going to be terrible for our societies and terrible for our economies and terrible for our food security and all of the other things so so that's what we're looking for at a cop you know to save the world yeah (laughs) yeah that's the little thing yeah we talked about a bit about the you know the trudeau government in canada Mm -hmm. is um committing to setting aside 25 percent of uh, the country as wilderness or, or nature areas nature conservation areas and so from from where you're standing, how does that look in terms of IPCAs and Indigenous Guardians? What, what would be the ideal scenario for you? Yeah, well, it yeah, the Canada has has been been leading um, in in these talks for a couple decades now, um, and has also joined the High Ambition Coalition, which is a, a group of over a hundred countries who've committed to to protecting thirty by thirty, um, and mm-hmm. so. Um, we're, you know, Canada is doing a pretty good job of playing with, with the leaders group, um, when, mm-hmm. when, when, with that. Uh, but what we're seeing on the ground is that the ambitions of indigenous peoples in terms of IPCAs or indigenous protected and conserved areas, um, and guardians far outweighs the available funding on the ground. Um, mm-hmm. and so if we think about, the guardians program uh you know the last intake that occurred 
I believe the the pressure was 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 three hundred percent over what was available. Um, so the you know we we've got nations who are ready to go, who are excited about this work. Um, this is you know a career being a guardian is an incredible career path. It's one where you can mm-hmm. you can fully integrate your your culture within the expression of your of your career and your job, and and that's incredibly attractive, um, especially mm-hmm. in in remote. Um, places that that don't necessarily have a lot of economic opportunities um, for people, and so that so, is yeah. So just quickly though, but in Canada, I mean, what I mean, what kind of funding exists for Indigenous Guardian programs, or is that something that's still being worked out? I mean, wh- where are we on? No, that we're um, we're look the the government has invested. Um, uh, yeah, look, they since 1992 the department of fisheries and oceans has supported the work of fisheries guardians which was a particular program mm-hmm. it's been very small and and has not really increased over time but it, it did create that base and it's part of why there were 30 existing programs um 5 years ago um then we you know we we started an extensive effort uh to to galvanize the movement and in 2017, the government invested in a pilot program of $25 million. Um, that enabled us to kind of grow the capacity. It also enabled us to change the way that the Department of Environment and Climate Change um, distributes the fund. Uh, so governments are used to building programs, but um, but there's a bit of a of a, a power issue when you're just when you're kind of the, in that dynamic. And what Indigenous peoples are looking for is is a partnership dynamic that nation to nation relationship rather than a recipient of a program um, that is magically falling from the offices of Ottawa. And so that is, that's something that we've been working on. And then in 2021, 2020, I can't remember which budget specifically Mm -hmm. in COVID times um, that was, uh, we had an additional injection of, of $173 million towards Guardians, of which 73 was for Parks Canada, and the rest was managed through that that initiative with Environment and Climate Change Canada. And there was also, you know, through the various nature budgets, again, in, in, in 2018, and then in, I think it was 2021 as well, um, there was also an amount for specifically dedicated to increasing and establishing indigenous protected and conserved areas like Canada knows that it it has to do this like right now I believe we're at about 15.4 percent of our country is currently protected and so we've got a ways to go to meet these targets and I don't know about you but 2023 is around the corner and um, you know sometimes these take time if you think about national parks establishment some you know i've we've 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 established one here in labrador that took over 30 years um to put in place uh, and um and you know provinces don't necessarily um, have the incentive to really advance some of their protected areas there's still a perception that somehow conservation displaces um economic opportunities which which i don't believe mm-hmm. for a second what i've seen is that conservation can become a keystone of of a new type of economy in many of these regions and so that's why yeah. i think it's really important that the government supports those ambitions of indigenous peoples and invests in in these areas and and we found mm-hmm. that indigenous protected areas um uh, processes can go very quickly 
um, you know, if all the players around the table are saying yes and the money is there, um, then we can we can do good things. And so that's that's what we'll be looking for. And and you know, Canada, um, we could do we could do. They're, they've they've done good steps. They've they've put their toe in the door, as we say um, mm-hmm. here in Labrador. But um, but we want them fully in, and uh, and we're ready for them. So we'll be looking for for those signals at COP as well. You I mean you talk about forestry, and you're a forester, and I think when people think forestry in this country, they think mostly about cutting mm-hmm. down trees as opposed to managing forests in, in a different way. But I mean, it's a huge part of our economy. Mm-hmm. And you talked about how do you manage that balance? I mean, how, how do you manage that balance? Yeah. Well, look, yes, I'm a forester, and, and I've been responsible for my share of trees being cut down in my career. Um, and I, I think that's a good thing. Um, forests do have that capacity. Uh, but it, I, I think in many ways, forestry's um, the 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 premise of, of forest planning has been flawed from the beginning. Um, when a you know when you're a forest company or you're the Department of Forestry of a province, you look at your your job and your mandate is to look at the forest and maximize the economic return that you get from that forest. Um, but as an inno forester, my first question when I look at the forest is what needs to stay for that forest to be able to make sure that I can continue to be Inu and the things that I depend on can continue to be who they are and what they are. Um, and, and then what's left over, then let's figure out how to do that. And let's figure out how to do that in, in, with the best standards globally. We're Canada. Um, we can, we can choose the, the Cadillac option of all of the options in forest management. So I do think that there is a need for the sector to rethink um, what has been essentially a luxury that it's had because it's operated in the world's largest intact forest. Um, When you do that, you have a sense of of abundance um, and therefore you're not as worried about risk um, to those areas. But but as an indigenous person, I think about risk all the time. Um, and and when we, you know, the, the kind of when we talk about the sacred gift or the sacred responsibility we, re- we receive from the creator, that's the crux of it. We cannot affect our environment to a point where we're, we're um, hindering the opportunity for future generations. And, and so it's, that's why we have that, that instinct of saying what needs to stay as opposed to what can go um, in those forests. And, and, and I do think that the forest sector needs to, needs to look at that. Um, and and there, are, there are choices to be made as well. You know, we spoke about caribou at the beginning of this podcast. Um, caribou in forests, I, 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 I have never really seen a good mix of those two things. Um, I think there are ways of doing it through planning, uh, and and making sure that there are large intact landscapes for those herds and but but I you know there's never been an instance of of caribou reoccupying disturbed areas due to forestry um, and so I I do think that when it comes to species like caribou we're going to have to start to look at at those choices and. And having provinces and, and premiers, let's pick on the province of Quebec, which is 
um, you know, my community I'm a member of is, is in Quebec and, and the premier says things like we won't sacrifice mm -hmm. a job for a caribou. Um, I think that's, that's incredibly, uh, short sighted and, and, and the wrong way of presenting, um, the issue. And, and, um, and I do know that, you know, I've, I've known so many people who work in the forest industry at all levels and, and all of them love the bush. That's kind of part of, of who people are when you work in that industry. You kind of like, you know, you you don't sit in a harvester because you hate being in the bush because believe me, you're going to spend, you know, you. <laughs> that's kind of part of what you're doing. So I don't believe for a second that people are like these, you know, cartoon versions of humans that are just chomping away at the bush and eating it and and happily like laughing as they're chewing through. I don't. I think people mm. want to do well by their environment. They want to do well by the forest and they, and they trust professionals who are telling them that things are okay, but those professionals um, probably could do a little bit better about looking at the impact of, of, of their work over right. the long term. And, and I'll just end by saying like a good example of that is, is, is moose. You know, when, when I went to school over 20 years ago, I was told that forestry is great for moose. Um, and I think that's true in the short term. I think when you're thinking about kind of available availability of browse and their foods and, and landscapes, moose do like fresh cuts because it means fresh food. Um, but over the long term of successive harvesting and large landscape impacts of forestry, what we're seeing is a gradual decline of some of these moose populations, like in, in the area of La Vérandrie in, in, in Western Quebec. Mm. And so, I do think that as an industry, therefore, we need to stop saying forestry's grape for moose and be honest about yeah. about that reality of forestry's grape for moose in the beginning. But we really have to think about in the over the long term how these landscapes are truly ma managed and what the mosaic of the forest really looks like. Given everything, given all we've discussed, <laughs> what, what gives you hope? Oh, um, in guardians give me hope every day um it gives me hope when i hear mothers say i hope my son or daughter will be a guardian when they grow up um it gives me hope to know that there are people every day who are working hard to to learn their language um and there are more language speakers today than there were five years ago than there were 10 years ago and that's exciting um the explosion mm -hmm of indigenous crafting online i don't know if you've noticed but there's like beaded earrings on every website and there's yeah. you know moose hide <laughs> camps and all of this is all possible because people are returning to the land and able to source those materials and and have the space and time to develop them and so that artistic boom is is incredibly hopeful to me um the, the fact that we've got um, more people going through post-secondary university and, and, and building and growing and asserting their leadership in the Indigenous community is, is exciting. You know, we've, we've had we've, we've more women as grand chiefs than, than ever. Like, um, let's take my friend Manny Galmasti of the Cree Nation of, of Quebec. You know, that's, that's spectacular. She's doing great work. Um, in that mm. leadership, all of those things are are giving me hope, and and also seeing how how young people are 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 um, experiencing 
what the elders have told us about, which is that when you go to the bush, you feel love. Um, that's that's hopeful uh, when you think about mm. kind of the dark colonial period that we've just gone through in the in the hundred and fifty odd years. Um, this these kind of things are are certainly what motivates me, and I I hope that that other um, Canadians also see hope in that. Um, and, uh, you know, it's not easy in these times when you turn on the use and you, you, you know, Ukraine and, and, um, droughts and all of the things happening globally, um, are kind of bombarded at you. But, but right here in Canada, um, that bright light of, of indigenous assertion and, and power and, and, um, and care for our lands, I think is, is, uh, something that certainly gets me out of bed in the morning well valerie thank you so much that's a lovely place to leave it i think so appreciate your time and wish you all the best thank you and thank you so much for listening for more on the issue of biodiversity loss be sure to scroll through past episodes of explore to find more on the topic including with harvey locke daniel Pauly, alana mitchell and wade davis among many others And if you like this podcast, please do us a favor and give us a rating and a review on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you're listening. It helps others to find these interviews. And be sure to subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. You can follow us on social media, at CanGeo and at MacGuffinDavid. Until next time, when we'll explore again, I'm David MacGuffin. We have Simpson about June the 10th with the Fur Brigade, consisting of a number of York boats, each manned by 10 voyageurs. For us, Inuit, it means that Inuit or history is very strong. Yeah, we flew low over every inch of the country that could be. We were hoping that he would fire at us.